When the Boston Redevelopment Authority was created nearly 70 years ago, its purpose was singular, to clear the way for new development, even if that meant displacing tens of thousands of working class, immigrant, and black and brown residents. Since 2016, it's been called the Boston Planning and Development Agency, or BPDA, but the focus on building buildings rather than community has held back the talent of its staff and deepened disparities in our city. That was Mayor Michelle Wu delivering her first State of the City address last month. The centerpiece of her speech was laying out plans to make good on her longstanding call to abolish the Boston Planning and Development Agency, which she argues has been heavily tilted toward inside players and developers with a focus, she argued, on building buildings rather than community. She said that system has only worked to deepen disparities in Boston. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine, and together with my colleague Bruce Mole, we're delighted to have Mayor Michelle Wu here on the podcast to talk about her plans. Mayor Wu, welcome. Thanks. It's been a while. It has been. So it's great to have you. And um, I want to dig in on this issue of remaking development. But first, I think I, I, I've got to ask you the really tough question of the day, which is uh, for our listeners, we're recording this on Friday. And I've got to say, um, here you are, uh, a native Midwesterner uh, growing up near Chicago. I'm from the Midwest. Bruce is also. I mean, you know, what's what's with this closing of the schools? I mean, it, <laughs> when, in my day, I'd say that we'd say there was a little nip in the air maybe today. <laughs> maybe um, my kids are getting to me. I don't know. <laughs> no, um, you know, the yes, we are hardy New Englanders and winter is a regular occurrence around here that we're not scared off by. But the, when, when we looked at the wind chill that would be uh, right around when schools is less so when school was opening today, but the sudden, sudden temperature drop and wind chills that will go um, significantly below zero. Unfortunately, we are, um, you know, even as, even if we are confident about students being able to get wait inside the school until the yellow bus comes and, and then get home on the yellow bus, many of our students are walking to and from school and taking public transit to and from school. And, you know, with the reliability right now, um, we, we have a lot of work to do to just guarantee that the wait times in general and all of those factors, we didn't want anyone to be outside for more than 20, 30 minutes, which is quite dangerous later today. And so that was, that was our, um, calculation and, and, um, it, you know, better to be safe than sorry in this case. Well, fair enough. I think you're right that erring, erring on the side of safety for kids is always is always probably a good call. Um, so let's sort of turn to the to the to the bigger question of of Boston's uh, development process in the future. And um, you you know laid out in more detail in your speech sort of the steps that that you want to take. But this goes back quite a number of years to your time, even on the city council, when you were a pretty vocal critic of the way business was done in terms of development in the city. So just help us understand, help our listeners understand sort of in the biggest picture way, you know, what is it that, uh, you know, was our system and what was so broken about it that that needs this pretty, pretty uh, massive rehaul that you've proposed? We're a city with tremendous, tremendous opportunities, and we are blessed to have Many of the underlying, you know, so-called bones or structures or natural factors here between um, our thriving um, university sector, some of the 
first and and uh, oldest world-renowned universities, uh, hub for healthcare and innovation, communities who are so engaged and uh, ready to to get involved and civically active. But in fact, the types of functions that help us map out our future together and how all those pieces fit together, where we are now, where we're trying to go, who's involved in getting us there and how we grow in what parts of the city, um, that is that is urban planning. That is mapping the needs of our communities against the resources that we have, the trade-offs that are necessary, and codifying that into a set of guidelines or parameters that is supposed to shape how we grow. And I think one big piece that feels technical, I, I bet if you ask most residents around the city, what are you worried about most? Um, I don't know if you'd find anyone who would say it's the zoning code, right? Or it's the the development process. Um, but the things that we do worry about most, right? Housing affordability or um, the threats to climate or air quality, um, whether the whether you can get to and from where you need to go through reliable transportation systems and and infrastructure, that is all related to how we make decisions about what's needed where. And so we've for a long time had a system that is much more oriented towards deciding and making changes around the edges to proposals that are put in front of us that developers or others want to put forward. Um, but when we make decisions in isolation, even when we get it right, it doesn't connect with the larger vision and needs of our city in the long term. And so this is really pushing to have a structure and set of rules that will help us get to be the city that shares the opportunities with everyone. And so just get a little bit more into the detail without going so far down the rabbit hole that we all get lost in the, in the kind of zoning uh you know, language minutia. But so what is it you want to do? We've got a structure that Boston Planning uh, Planning and Development Agency, it's a, it, it operates there in City Hall. Uh, they coordinate things, but, but you feel that the structure is, is, is working sort of at cross purposes for the kind of vision you just laid out for how we want the city to grow. So what is it that's sort of broken and what is it that it, you want to fix it by replacing it with? Yeah, that's right. So, um, really, what we have, what we have today, the kind of status quo of of uh, structure and decision making, is an amalgamation, a kind of mishmash of different functions that have been layered onto this agency over many decades, often shaped by the political desires of that moment or. Um, a pressing economic need, uh, and it was trying to just put a Band-Aid on a situation. So what happens in the set of functions that are represented are uh, span from you know plan having the responsibility for planning, even if we are not necessarily devoting the resources that that is necessary to it and creating the um, supports for that long-term planning, but planning, development review, when projects are formally proposed, how do we go back and forth and ask for changes or amendments until it's at, at the point where we want to give the approval and they can start building? Um, compliance, which is after an agreement has been set with a certain set of mitigation or resources that will go to 
um, addressing consequences of a particular development or a commitment to affordable affordability or funding in that way? Are we following up with them and actually making sure that that happens? That lies in the agency right now, previously as well. Um, research and what's called real estate, which is really managing a large portfolio of land and other parcels and some properties that have come to be in the agency's ownership over time. When we have a structure that encompasses all of that, that has been separated from the way that the rest of any city department does business because it's not connected to the city budget and the particular accountability that comes with being vetted through that process. And it is separate in terms of staffing and um, where the funding to maintain that staff comes from, which is the real estate portfolio, uh, not the city budget itself, again, with certain mechanisms of, account of accountability. And so in those three kind of before, during, and after of how a development is proposed before being the zoning code and what we want to see in the community, that is not happening so much right now proactively, right? It's happening in different ways, but we have to work against the structure. The how it's being reviewed, development review, is consuming the vast majority of resources and staff time in the agency. And then the compliance, the follow-up afterwards also has had some challenges here and there and and you know staff members are doing their best, um, but structurally it should go elsewhere. So we're moving compliance out to go with housing when it's about housing affordability and the chief financial officer's office when it's about um, monetary amounts, just like they oversee many other grant allocations. The before of how we set that vision, we're creating shifting planning from the agency to the city, building up a stronger, more supported, more interconnected planning function overseen by a, a planning and advised by a planning advisory council that is connecting all of our cabinets, transportation, climate, housing, arts, um, capital planning altogether. And then um, development review. We are proposing a set of reforms that will be guided by a newly designated nine-member steering group. We just announced and, and invited to get started this morning. They'll propose changes to how that process could be more transparent and consistent. And then, um, yep, and so that takes us through basically the entire life cycle of development. So, I mean, a um, uh, kind of main thrust of this, as it's always been said, is this idea of separating the planning process from the development review and 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 you're uh, arguing or, or maintaining that that separating those is going to create for more um, for more thoughtful way for the city to grow and that having them so closely uh, operating together under this sort of quasi independent authority has is sort of is that the one of the kind of key areas that has been the problem in the decades since this entity is formed. And just to help people, I think it was in the late, this goes back to the late 1950s or so that this entity was created through an authorization by the state that included, among other things, giving it these very strong powers over, over development that, you know, I think a lot of people still, if they are students of the city, would sort of most famously uh, associate with the raising of a whole neighborhood, the knocking down of the West End neighborhood. And that's often been used kind of as the sort of, you know, story to sort of illustrate this idea of that this agency is kind of this unaccountable bulldozing agency that has run roughshod over 
over over areas of the city. And it's kind of, you know, turned the agency is sort of, you know, into a, a boogeyman in, in people's minds in more recent decades. Um, is that the idea to kind of s- sort of reduce its powers and to also separate planning? So there, I think there are two things at play. Well, okay, first off, just a quick note on history. Um, and then I want to talk about kind of two much more tangible outcomes. I think that might be helpful to understand what are we actually doing besides talking about theoretical structures and, and governance and all that. But just on the history of the governance, um, yes, in, when it was created in the late 1950s, this was not Boston alone. Cities across the country were undergoing um, you know, urban flight and were concerned about trying to bring investment back into city centers. And as other cities then did under this ethos of urban renewal, um, we created a redevelopment authority. And the aim of urban renewal, as a, that's a technical term, is to eradicate urban blight and decay. And so you got things like the West End and and other parts of the city as well. And the Southwest Corridor was clear. They're, you know, they're planned for a highway and, and this and that and the other. Um, but even after that, Boston took a slightly different direction than other cities around the country. Many cities eased off after the example of the West End and kind of the realization of the human impacts of this kind of dogged focus on investment and development um, at this scale and at that sort of, you know, the the images of the bulldozers and all that. Um, And many other cities changed tax and and went in a slightly different direction. Boston, in fact, doubled down on this particular concentration of authorities. And we even, as a city, dismantled our planning board, which had been a separate function, collapsed that into the agency and therefore legally assigned the planning powers of the city to the agency that was created for development. And then in decades later, further changed things by taking the whole operation off the city budget, where previously when things are proposed and have to go through the city budget funded by taxpayers, there's a very thorough review process, city council votes on the budget, lots of discussions and hearings and accountability. Um, It went off the books to be self-funded as an agency. And then later on, after they started to run out of money for self-funding, they um, had sold off a bunch of properties that were um, then, you know, then they were, they had a limited resource of new land to be able to continue selling off. They eventually collapsed together two agencies, the Boston Redevelopment Authority and the, the EDIC, Economic Development Industrial Corporation, and that was mushed into the sub into the agency as well with a workforce development component. So there are lots of things that kind of float in there now because of these various phases that were not so much intentional structural decisions, but again, to meet a particular need or band-aid of that moment. And so where we are today, after all of that, two problems. Um, one is that our zoning code is obsolete, I will just say. Um, it hasn't been comprehensively updated since 1965. The vast, vast majority, you know, 90% plus of new construction has to happen with exceptions to the zoning code, variances or you know, permissions to break the rules that zoning exemplify because the rules haven't been updated in so long and nothing would be possible under the, the current rules. Um, and then there is another challenge of um, that separation and this agency being kind of disconnected from how we might think about the other 
quality of life um, impacts housing, um, transportation, schools, parks, everything that a resident needs in their life beyond just physical structures and buildings needs to be more closely interconnected. Planning connects both of those challenges. Planning should be the process of collectively weighing the trade-offs. Do we keep a parcel as open space and necessary parkland, or do we turn it into affordable housing, which we badly need? And making those trade-offs are and changing the rules and setting them as zoning is um, a process that hasn't been happening in the city in terms of a long-term look ahead, what do we need to get us to where we have to go? Um, and then integrating the planning of the buildings and the structures with all of the infrastructure that's needed to support that, that, that is what's accomplished by, by these changes that we're suggesting. So it, it sounds like a, a great idea the way you portray it. But I imagine one idea that of creating this separate entity was to get it out of city hall and politics and all that entails and giving someone a little separate the power to get things done. And now you're bringing the budgets, all this stuff under the purview of city council and yourself and what have you. Um, it It runs the possibility of even if you gain all the approvals you need, it runs the possibility of a long, dragged out process that may end up with mush in the end. Uh, people would worry about that. How, how do you guard against that and get something done? Well, one thing to note is that we basically already have mush, right? So the current system is already such that we don't have an updated zoning code. And it is a very politicized, historically, a very politicized set of inputs that shape approvals. And so um, one example, right, when we talk about housing and our housing crisis, how how prices are going up so quick, and, and we know we need more housing, how do we ensure that we have enough space and are, are growing to accommodate um, the, the residents who are here and who want to be here? When we set out a goal as a city, and when we, I mean, Boston at large, when when an administration sets out a goal of, we want to grow by tens of thousands of new units of housing, but do it through a broken zoning code and development review process where you have to get a special waiver for each one of those tens of thousands of new units. You have to get either ZBA approval, Zoning Board of Appeals waiver, or you have to get an extraordinary um, BPDA rezoning attached to your project. When we do it that way, then the investment, the how everything rushes towards the, either those who are well resourced enough to know how to navigate and get those approvals. There can they can hire the right lawyers and consultants, or they know someone who knows someone and it can encourage or uh, create the pathway to corruption, which unfortunately we have already also seen. Um, in the in the past, um, or the burden falls on areas of the city and communities that are less resourced to be able to mobilize against something. And so the decisions aren't intentional about where the housing units should go and how that will enhance how that fits in with transportation and where it's where they're needed and how it, it you know um, uh, improves everyone's quality of life, but it's haphazard and it is based on all of these, efforts that push towards cronyism and um, and an uneven, inconsistent 
kind of development of the city. How we want to grow the city in uh, the, the team that's assembled and leading this work now, Chief of Planning, Arthur Jemison, Chief of Housing, Sheila Dillon, uh, transportation and climate and um, arts and, and everyone who's small business, and economic, economic opportunity, everyone who's involved is to say, we are going to change the rules to codify what kind of growth we want to see. Just in changing the zoning to you know, focusing around neighborhood squares and corridors or main streets districts, areas where there's already more transportation access, where there are little corridors of small businesses, adding mixed use developments, housing on top can support those small businesses and strengthen them. And also according to some of the, you know, this has the potential to generate tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of new housing units that will actually fit with our neighborhoods but we have to take the responsibility of having the hard conversations and then changing the rules so that they apply to everyone. And then as of right, we'll be able to grow by tens of thousands of housing units. Um, one and final thing I want to say on this, kind of going back to your, well, wasn't the structure meant to insulate us from politics? Another place that we are seeing a version of this phenomena or outcome is with our public transportation system. The MBTA being a quasi-state agency that hasn't had, in some ways, direct accountability to any elected representative and therefore, you know, was meant to maybe also be in a long-term planning, shielded from politics kind of way. In fact, what happened was there was no incentive for a particular um, elected official or, or group to say, this is important and I'm going to take responsibility and do this. In fact, on that front, we are fighting to have more direct accountability with our requests for a seat on the MBTA board for Boston residents as well. So I think in all places, I believe that rather than shielding uh, certain functions from public knowledge and, and accountability, in fact, if we want to deliver the kind of impacts that we need, that is a crucial part of the solution. I mean, to your point about adding thousands of units, you also mentioned in, in your in your State of the City speech this vision of, of Boston becoming, again, a city of 800,000 people, which I guess is maybe, is that the peak, uh, our peak population uh, going back probably to around the 1950s or so? Um, and um, I, 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 I can see the vision uh, of a more vibrant city with that, that sort of population size, but I've just wondered, does... Does this process sort of, is it set up to sort of make that more possible? Or, or again, could it be a barrier to it if you have, if you're bringing more review in? It, it, you sort of assume that the greater good of having this bigger city will be seen by everyone. But we see over and over again, uh, you know, at the very local neighborhood level when there's a lot more input, the, the word from many communities seems to be, no, we don't want it, whatever it is any kind of housing development. It's the age old, I mean, it's the NIMBY phenomenon. Everyone thinks we need more housing. They just aren't too keen on seeing it go up, you know, across the street from them. So uh, if, if you're kind of bringing more, more kind of public process into the, into development, is that going to sort of work to sort of stymie this, this vision of a, of a more vibrant, larger city? I'm not sure it's possible to have more process on development than we do right now. Um, and so we're not calling for more process or more meetings or 
more of what is an incredibly frustrating experience for residents and those proposing projects right now. The, the issue is that community engagement and the conversations about what we want to see in our neighborhoods, that is happening at the wrong point of the process. It cannot be that we don't ask residents for their views and needs on how everything needs fits together but instead for each new building that is proposed that is when we open up a separate conversation about each of i mean i i know parts of the city and individual community leaders who are going to two three community meetings a week sometimes multiple on the same night or trading off just so that they can cover everything because of the scale and pace of a butters meetings attached to everything when in fact that that is the sign of a broken system we cannot be productively and healthily supporting our residents if the only way to have any input into your neighborhood is to come night after night after night to fight something the goal of shifting things into a more supported and robust planning framework is we engage residents on what is needed right now in the community, work together to codify the various maybe competing needs or trade-offs into a vision for what should apply across the board or or in, in, in um, if it's not at a whole neighborhood scale, at a community, a, a neighborhood commercial district scale citywide or civic and open space citywide, and then to codify those rules so that we are not litigating every single individual project because we know that they're going to match what the rules are. And so this will see a significant, if we're successful in this, in updating the zoning code and making real changes with planning, guiding what those changes are, then we should see a dramatic reduction of what goes before the Zoning Board of Appeals. Right now, the ZBA is our de facto planning agency, but they're not equipped or structurally set up to do that in a holistic, interconnected way. So if I understand you correctly, then the community or, or the neighborhood would collectively look at what's needed. And then as in, and once that's agreed upon, once an individual project comes along, their, their say of yay or nay on that would be, you've already said what whether that's okay or not. That's right. I and see. you know, it's at a theoretical well, level, fight. there's always exceptions, right? There are always... Um, for example, in this this kind of second bucket of the pre-proposal, uh, the development review, and then the post, the follow-up compliance, in that middle bucket, there will always be a need for development review and weighing the particularly, you know, certain types of projects that are more extensive or um, of a scale that it's impossible to kind of anticipate what, what could go there. Um, but even in those examples, um, I think about, for you know, for instance, the Winthrop Square garage parcel was a city-owned garage, basically one of the last large developable parcels downtown. So uh, it, right in the financial district, had a decrepit, decaying parking garage that was owned by the city, needed to be turned into something, had the potential to contribute in some way. But the process by which we arrived uh, as a city by which we arrived at a decision was to put it out with a call for proposals from various developers. And we got back a whole range of different types of 
options. One group said, we're going to build a tall building and give the city a bunch of money. One group said, we want to have a school. We're going to use a different part. We're going to create some streetscape improvements. One group had all, all sorts of things. And okay, you know, maybe that was a choice that then could be made among different options, but with such value there and such control and ownership over a city owned parcel that it could have been anything, why not have some process with the community beforehand? Why not just pause for a second and say, let's really engage on even at a this particular parcel, what do we need downtown? I mean, ideally we would have had this conversation about the neighborhood as a whole. We're looking for an opportunity to either put in a school or put in, you know, an art space or or whatever is needed that we could then build into the specifications for a, a project and the rules and the zoning and then get the proposals back. And so I think that's just shifting things to be a little bit more proactive and um, a little bit more holistic in terms of what we need and not separating the consideration of individual buildings from everything else in people's lives. I was just curious if I could go back just for a second to your the 800,000 population figure you threw out. How'd you just, how'd you settle on that one as the target to, to be at? Is there a, a, a solid reasoning behind that? Or is it just you wanted to get back to the top spot? It's a vision statement that um, needs to be and will be backed up by all the planning to define what that means in terms of housing and transportation infrastructure and all of that. But I think, you know, the way that I um, hope that we as a city think about this is we often talk about growth only in terms of numbers of units, right? Very familiar to say we want to have 53,000 new units by this date or 69,000. And, and it's important to have metrics of how we're doing and what the pipelines are and and, and um, to know where, know the real progress. But when we talk about units rather than people, we miss out on all of the other needs that are associated with that. And so I want us to be a city where we have a pathway to be at our fullest, right? And so far our fullest has been defined as 800,000 according to our history, um, to be at our fullest, but in a way that includes everyone. That, um, you know, because the growth that we've seen in in more recent booms in Boston has actually come at the expense of many communities and residents being pushed out of our city and not included in that growth. And so, Again, we need to focus on getting housing production up and we're doing everything we can on that front, putting the bulk of our federal recovery dollars towards housing, speeding up our own processes, using city-owned land for housing, boosting home ownership. Um, but we also need to stabilize residents in their homes today. And we need to ensure that we're planning for the transportation, childcare, schools, parks, all of the rest of that that goes into it. So one little last sort of maybe the elephant in the room that we haven't discussed is that that the part of your vision has to go through the city council and then be sent to the state legislature on Beacon Hill for approval and sign off. So can you give me a sense of how confident are you that that can happen? And then if it doesn't happen, how much of your vision could happen without getting that sign off? Or are we or is this whole thing completely at the mercy of, uh, of of lawmakers on Beacon Hill. Um, so this is a really good 
point and, and question, and because there are many moving pieces to the, this that are actually doing different parts of it. The state the home rule petition that would need approval at the city council and state legislative level is actually in some ways more of a technicality of, um, anyway, I, I will explain that. The bulk of the structural transitions, the zoning changes, the um, building up of planning as an interconnected function with the rest of the city department, that is happening right now under Chief Jemison, and it does not require any other layer of government's approvals to do that. We are able to manage our workforce, restructure things in a way that um, is is already happening, and we'll have outcomes, um, knock on wood, uh, through this year and, and beyond that can very concretely show we're updating our zoning code, we are changing tangibly um, the the ways in which these processes function will have wrapped up our Article 80 development review um, steering groups processes by the end of the year and get their uh, recommendations for how we need to change that process. Anyway, what has gone up to or what has gone to the city council that will need to go up to the state house as well is on urban renewal in particular. A, that is a, again, the technical term about a specific set of legal authorities that were delegated to the city by the state on geographic map areas to be able to implement projects like the West End. These dozen or so maps are largely areas that are downtown because that was the focus several decades ago. And they were meant to be a time-limited tool of 40 years initially with 10-year extensions that have been extended now multiple times for 10 years. And we are retiring those tools being used in that way. Um, in the same breath, we are going to modernize the language so that the focus of our development process and our planning is no longer about eradicating urban blight and decay, but directing the full force of city government to resiliency, affordability, and equity. The same day that I that we signed that um, proposal and sent it over, I also signed an executive order directing the agency to act as if that legislation had already passed. And so while we need it, for the legal um, I's and T's to be dotted and, and crossed. In fact, we are going to function that way already. And um, we hope that we can then have the official sign off to come as well. Great. Well, uh, Mayor Michelle Wu, uh, I want to thank you for helping us understand a lot of these uh, uh, complicated issues and uh, look forward to speaking with you going forward as, uh, as the process plays out. Thank you both so much. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the podcast. We will see you next week.